listening to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast with your host, Jessica Strang, and your co-host, Jennifer Trevelli. If you've ever wanted to start therapy but didn't know where to begin, you've come to the right place. In this podcast, we will offer, I don't know, what you call Therapy 101 by interviewing experts in the field and asking them anything and everything you want to know about therapy before you make that first appointment. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Jeff Stein. He's a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with children and adolescents in both talk therapy as well as psychological assessments. Dr. Stein has worked in a variety of different settings for the past 16 years, and we are so excited to have him on our podcast today. Dr. Stein, welcome to today's episode. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about kind of what brought you into the field, where you're working, where you have been working? Just kind of help us get to know you. Yes, please do. Sure. Thank you uh, (laughs) very much for for inviting me. And, you know, I started... um, getting interested in psychology back in high school when I took like the, you know, the typical, you know, psych 101 class. And then I uh, did my undergraduate work at Michigan State University, where I got my Bachelor of Science uh, in psychology. And I learned pretty quickly at that point that what I wanted to do, which is do psychological assessments or therapy, uh, with people required more of a like higher degree. So sure. So I moved from Michigan to uh, to Chicago, where I went to the Illinois School of Professional Psychology, and I got my doctorate uh, in psychology there. And then uh, since that time, I've been working with children and adolescents and adults too, but I specialize in children and adolescents, uh, doing both psychological assessments and talk therapy. So, you know, what's interesting is that you, you took the same intro to psych class that probably every single high school student had to take, but then what made you kind of decide when you went to undergrad or did you already know when you were going into undergrad, like, I want to study psychology or were you just like, Oh, just do whatever and land in it. (laughs) So I had, (laughs) I had I I didn't jump right in. I think my freshman year at Michigan State, I was technically undeclared because I just I wasn't one hundred percent sure. But I when I started taking my psych classes there, I realized two things that I was really really interested in uh, psychopathology and how to treat. Uh, how to like treat those issues Mm -hmm. and also just how brain-based psychology actually is it doesn't always come across that way I think in popular in popular culture but I got really hooked on the like different brain regions what happens with those brain regions when there's difficulties with uh, inattention or impulsivity or even other mood-related issues. So after that, I was pretty much hooked. And I, much to my um, my counselor's dismay, uh, when I was picking my classes, I kept taking more and more psych classes than I needed to because I just <laughs> it so much. And they were like, do you want to maybe vary a little bit? Take a, like a, uh, like a, like a accounting? literature class? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Got anything with the brain there? <laughs> Well, that's great. I mean, it sounds like you really kind of hit your stride in, in, in undergrad and really, you know, really enjoyed the, what you had been studying. And did you do any any work in undergrad to kind of solidify it, like any work with professors or laboratories or anything like that? Yeah, I so I was I was very lucky that I kind of like hit it on the first go. Like as soon as I um, started taking those classes, I was just kind of hooked and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So uh, yeah, later in my undergrad career, I worked in a psychology lab studying the lateralization of brain function. So what but that for means... the for the people in the back that don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Can you elaborate, please? Yeah, so lateralization of brain function is 
the idea that certain parts of the brain, like the left side of the brain or the right side of the brain, are more likely to take over certain functions. So, for example, Hmm. most of us are right-handed. And so that's represented in the left part of our brain. Uh, However, we tend to process emotions a little bit more on the right side of the brain. Hmm. And so we were looking at the, the differences in the lateralization of motor movement of infant cradling. So like when you cradle your uh, newborn child, most people cradle on the, uh, on the left side. And that's very, very common in all cultures. And so that was kind of what I was uh, getting into. Why was there this brain-based reason that manifested in that sort of way? That's fascinating. Cause now, as you like said that, I'm like picturing myself when I hold a baby and that's yes. so true. It's like mm-hmm. awkward to hold the baby the opposite way. I just yeah. thought I was awkward, <laughs> but it turns out there's something to it. See, look at that. I know you learn something new every day. You do. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff, now like you realize you had this like passion and, and desire to learn more about the brain and how the brain functions. So how did that kind of move into your current role, your current you know, what you do today, how do you incorporate what you've learned and kind of how did that get you to where you are today? So when I got into grad school, I really wanted to do neuropsychological testing. And so that is giving standardized testing measures to people uh, to measure their different cognitive functions, their emotional functioning, so you can develop Uh, recommendations and a treatment plan for them and help with diagnosis, Mm -hmm. clarification and such. And so I took a lot of my uh, courses in grad school geared towards that because it tends to be a brain-based sort of thing. And I always like trying to, you know, figure out what's going on uh, for people. And so that was always a big driving force. But um, what I didn't realize was how... Um, psychological testing can be done in so many different environments and, and have it be really helpful to people. And so when I started working at a therapeutic day school uh, for a while, um, they also were doing psychological assessment. And I ultimately uh, took, you know, took control of that and was able to run that program in the therapeutic day school environment. And it just makes a lot of sense to me that you measure what's going on, you develop a treatment plan based on what those uh, results are, and then it's like a, the most direct approach to helping people with their challenges or getting them the supports and accommodations they need. And I think that, that you bring up a really good point of why it's important to do testing is because it is a hallmark of what a psychologist is, is trained to do. You know, that's mm-hmm. it's what I always understood it to be. Um, but it really does give them that evidence, right, that you're saying about what's happening with them and putting it in black and white and making recommendations. And, and so I'm curious, you know, um, when you were doing your neuropsych, why choose therapeutic day? Was that um, because there was a population you want to work with or because um, they offered the neuropsych testing? What, what made you choose um, that? I'm assuming that was one of your practicums or, or, yeah. or internships. Yeah, so I did my, my, I had a diagnostic externship at a, uh, at a private practice that did neuropsychology testing people of all different age groups. I did an advanced diagnostic uh, externship in the elderly population mm-hmm. at a, uh, hosp- so a suburban hospital. Wow. Uh, working with individuals who were, uh, who had uh, symptoms of dementia or other complicating health factors that impacted their cognitive functioning. But my biggest passion was working for working with children and adolescents. And so in the therapeutic day school environment, uh, not only are you working with uh, children and adolescents with perhaps uh, some significant uh, emotional related concerns, but that's also a place where it's important to identify how a child learns, what sort of things are getting in the way of that child lear- uh, from, you know, from learning. Is it attention problems? Is it neurodevelopmental 
uh, impairments. So, uh, so I liked that therapeutic day environment because it was with a population I enjoyed, but then also there's a lot of factors that come into play that, um, gives them their behavioral presentation. And I just felt like we could do a lot of good help to help articulate exactly what these children need so they Mm -hmm. can reintegrate back to their homeschool. Mm -hmm. So kind of taking us back to more of a, the basics with it, what can you tell us and explain to us what exactly is psychological testing? I think there are times where you'll hear people say psych testing, psychological testing, a psych eval, you know, neuropsych eval. Can you kind of break that down for us and explain to us exactly what it is, you know, what it is, what it is that you do? Sure. So all of those terms are used pretty interchangeably, I think, with people. Um, I hear that a lot. Like, mm-hmm. like, I don't need a psychological, I don't need psychological testing. I need neuropsychological testing. Mm-hmm. And so there are some variations in what they mean, but in, in its mm-hmm. ba- basic form, psychological testing or a psychological assessment is where you give standardized testing to someone um, generally in an interactive manner or computer-based testing, um, paper and pencil testing to quantify their cognitive functioning and their social emotional functioning. Those are the two big camps and cognitive functioning would include things like processing speed, working memory, um, visual spatial skills, uh, verbal skills, those sorts of things. And then social emotional testing would involve, um, you know, how, how someone views themselves, views their environment or their interpersonal relationships. So a lot of, so every clinical psychologist can do a psychological assessment. Uh, psychological evaluation is pretty much synonymous with that. Uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of like, if you're asking for an assessment versus an evaluation, they're almost one in the same thing. I think in an academic sense, they're slightly different, but, but really you're not missing out on anything. If you ask for an evaluation versus an assessment, the biggest difference though, is between psychological assessment and neuropsychological assessments. So neuropsychological assessments are a little bit more specialized. Clinical psychologists can get board certified as a neuropsychologist. And what neuropsychologists specialize in is how genetic related concerns or health related concerns impact cognitive and social emotional functioning. So it has more of that um, biological based emphasis. So a neuropsychological assessment would be involved when someone has, um, you know, a suspicion of being on the autism spectrum or uh, attention deficit, uh, hyperactivity disorder, or even things like, um, you know, childhood, uh, childhood cancer and how Mm -hmm. that impacts cognitive functioning or fetal alcohol syndrome, like how exposed uh, children were, in utero to different, uh, different drugs. So there's that more, there's a more of a biological emphasis on that sort of thing. You know, know, as you're bringing this up, I'm I'm thinking back to in the past, Jen and I also had worked at a therapeutic day and we would look at a lot of evaluations that were done previous for a lot of our clients. I did see a difference though, with school evaluations. Can you, Mm -hmm. can you talk about, is there a difference between, let's say, um, a non- you know, like a non-therapeutic day school evaluation versus the evaluations that you had been doing when you were doing your practicums and when you did um, a lot of the work that you, you've done in, in your career. Yeah, so school, school-based evaluations are very, very focused on the okay. school setting and learning or achievement. So, oh, okay. so okay. A, school, a school-based assessment or a school evaluation looks at... Um, you know, and maybe not as in-depth as those other types of assessments I've talked about, but looks at um, how well the child is learning. Do they, uh, 
do they function at the same level as their same age peers where in which way are do they uh, you know do they have deficits so school-based assessments look at problems in learning or in the presence of learning disabilities or anything that is an obstacle to learning so like ADHD can fall uh, can fall into an academic based concern and schools can try to look at that however schools often don't have the uh the resources always Mm -hmm. to fully map out what might be going on that makes sense that does so you had mentioned you know doing a psychological assessment with somebody kind of helps to map out what is the best treatment plan for them what course of action should be taken so does that mean like anybody who's coming in to see a therapist should really have an evaluation done at some point what would be the purpose of you know, seeking out specifically a psychological evaluation or an assessment versus, you know, just meeting with a therapist or even meeting with a psychiatrist? And if how would somebody differentiate what would be the best course for them to take at this point? So I, this is how I, I tend to look at uh, psychological testing is when there is a question with the people you might be working with, like let's say you're struggling in some manner, so you seek out a psychiatrist or a therapist, and you start working on these uh, these uh, concerns that you might have, if it seems like things aren't getting better or there's a little lack of clarity of on how best to attack the, the, the problem or the challenge that someone is having, that's when psychological testing might be recommended. And oftentimes, you know, it, when I get referrals for psychological testing, it's from either psychiatrists or therapists. Hmm, so, okay. some, yeah, so sometimes what happens is there's a, like diagnostically, there needs to be some clarification on what's going on or you know, the, the treatment as usual isn't as effective as people might uh, hope it would be. And so you do psychological testing to see if something that is not readily apparent is getting in the way of someone achieving their goals. Like, for example, you know, you might have a, a child who appears to not be paying attention in school uh, seems to be daydreamy, um, you know, always has to has to have uh, instructions repeated over and over again. And so, you know, what someone might think is, okay, maybe there's an attention problem. So you go see a therapist and you work on behavioral skills that will help with focus and attention. You might even go to a psychiatrist to get, uh, to get some medication-based support for it. And it's still not getting better. And so, which is not a typical outcome. So what mm-hmm. you would then do is go maybe seek a psychological um, evaluation or assessment. I mean, and what comes out of that assessment is there's actually maybe an auditory processing issue. Mm-hmm. So it has really nothing to do with attention. We're missing the mark a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's more on how the brain is having trouble decoding what is being verbally spoken about. Fascinating and, and 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 so helpful, right, John? To absolutely you know, parents, and then you know, and what to do next, especially in that setting. And, and so, I guess to go back to some of the practicums or, or the the placements that you had been at, Jeff, um, you had been in therapeutic day, and now you're in private practice. Is there a difference you see in testing um, therapeutic day versus private practice, or do does it feel the same to you um, as the person administering the tests? So. So it feels the, it feels the same to me the uh, in terms of what I do because what how I structure my test batteries and how I write up my reports and stuff is pretty consistent with what I did in the therapeutic day school environment and what I'm doing in my private practice now. So I think you'll see though a lot of variation in what therapeutic day schools do for testing. Um, my emphasis had always been kind of on a more holistic approach where we look at both the cognitive and social emotional functioning and how they interplay with each other uh, and then have recommendations to address those issues. Really the, the difference I think in private practice 
assessment is um, I think it's a, there becomes an issue related to um, really just like pain and insurance because psychological mm. assessments can be, uh, can be pretty costly. And so, so you want to try to do the best job you can um, without, you know, taxing somebody's financial resources so much. So sometimes those private practice assessments can be a little bit more streamlined uh, as opposed to the therapeutic day environment where, you know, you do have, you know, more opportunities to observe and to assess an individual. Is that something kind of in your experience in private practice that you, ha- you see a difficulty in having insurance cover it? Is it something that is, is easy if somebody has been in treatment, you know, they have a history of trying, you know, therapy, psychiatry, different treatment forms prior to, and they're not successful. Is it something that it's easy for insurance to kind of say, sure, let's try this route. Or is it something that, that definitely kind of gets some pushback? Cause I know there's a lot of areas in the field that unfortunately insurance can oftentimes kind of play a role in treatment. Is this an area that that happens? The short answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> we, want, well, we want the long answer. <laughs> it is. It can be kind of complicated based on somebody's insurance mm-hmm. um, because oftentimes insurance companies have to or put themselves in the position to gauge whether psychological testing is needed at that time mm-hmm. or not because it is uh, a more costly uh, procedure. And so that can sometimes be a barrier Sometimes what can be a barrier is um, that insurance companies might not cover certain diagnoses. So for example, Mm -hmm. um, I'm painting with a pretty broad brush here, but it's been my experience that insurance companies often don't pay for an academic-based question. So if the question you're trying to answer with psychological testing or neuropsych testing is, why is my child struggling in school? Insurance companies say, well, you should go ask the school for that and they will do an evaluation. We're not going to assist in paying for that. That's someone else's responsibility. And sometimes different diagnoses like ADHD or autism spectrum disorder aren't um, reimbursed by insurance companies, meaning that Mm -hmm. the client unfortunately is on the hook for for the total payment Mm. because they're viewed as more of an educational and school-based diagnosis. So what I would always, you know, recommend, unfortunately, for people who are looking to utilize their health insurance for psychological testing is to inquire about any sort of, you know, like under what circumstances would it not be covered? And obviously, I think any uh, psychologists or neuropsychologists would also do their due diligence in contacting the insurance company to make sure that those services are covered. So, so, and it's totally true because I think, um, you know, just on a side, when I'm checking someone's insurance, when they're coming to see me just for, you know, just individual therapy, uh, you know, there is a couple of codes that the, the, the customer service rep at every single insurance company would say to me is like, um, do you know the diagnostic code? I'm like, no, man, I just, I haven't even seen them yet. How would I know that? <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right. would I, but they're like, but you know, we'll cover it all unless it's X, Y, and yep. Z. And they're the ones you just named. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like, okay, got it. So I guess, you know, you're not going to cover those huge <laughs> diagnostic <Yeah>. categories <laughs> that are really needed right. insurance companies. Um, <laughs> That sorry, that's just an aside. But so 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 if I were to like if 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 I was just like Joe Schmo and I'm like I think something's going on with me or or somebody in my family, how would I go about getting an assessment? Like I would just call a, a psychologist. Like how would I find you, for example? So there's a couple. I think there's a couple avenues um, that people can go down. I think talking to your primary care doctor or your child's pediatrician, if it's a child or adolescent that you're concerned about. They can often make referrals and sometimes, you know, I hate bringing up insurance yet again, but sometimes insurances require a doctor to refer for psychological Mm -hmm. testing. Like an order, like a, like a a referral. Okay. Yes, that's right. And so, so that's one way. Another way is often, like I had mentioned before, someone you're already working with refers like, like, okay, we, you know, let's get some 
clarity on to what degree an attention issue is at play. Let's get some neuropsychological testing uh, done. So that's, that's another way. But um, in private practice, uh, my experience has been uh, a parent's child or adolescent has been struggling not only in school, but outside of school, within the family relationship, difficulty connecting with peers, and they're noticing irritability or or their child is withdrawing or sad or emotionally dysregulated and it's unclear what the child's needs are Mm, and so so they will you know they'll you know either look on psychology today or or other search engines uh for psychology for clinical psychologists in their area that does psychological testing uh because not every clinical psychologist offers that although every clinical psychologist is trained in it and then they give me a call and then I try to, you know, then I fit them in. Yeah. So once, once they kind of, they give you a call, they meet with you, you go through kind of your battery of tests. How then are the results used? You know, you, you sit down with the person afterwards, you kind of go over your findings, what came out, what is, how can those results, those results be used with the patient? What's something that might be helpful for them to use once they have that information? So, so when you sit down with a, with a client to go over their test results, what you want to make sure is that you have a clear understanding of where you need to go next. And that's going to be based on generally for a psychological assessment, there's a clinical interview, there's, you know, just there's some observational data, then of course, all the testing data, the interpretation, and then what every person should receive when their uh, evaluation is complete are diagnoses, if there are any, and treatment recommendations. And the treatment recommendations are really, in my mind, the most valuable part of the entire assessment because it's a roadmap of how to move forward and try to persevere, you know, try to persevere through these, uh, these challenges. And so, you, you know, a psychologist will sit down with you and review the findings and review those recommendations. And sometimes those recommendations can be, you know, school-based, if it's a child or adolescent, can be some school-based recommendations, some family-based recommendations. And so you're looking at things like, or you might hear things like in the school environment, giving your child or adolescent, you know, maybe the school can give them additional time if that's appropriate to complete standardized testing or quizzes or testing because their anxiety spikes to such a degree that it's hard for them to complete uh, their assignments in a timely manner. Or there might be recommendations to seek out a psychiatrist for for uh, a medication evaluation to see if medication might help. Finding certain types of therapy uh, for what the for what the individual is uh, going through can also be treatment recommendations. So those are some of those ways forward. In addition to helping build certain skills, so like if through the psychological assessment, what is found is. Uh, child or adolescent has some speech-related issue. You can make a recommendation for speech therapy or occupational therapy if there's some sensory integration or fine motor issues going on. Um, so th- so even, uh, for example, if there's social skills uh, deficits, getting them into a social skills group to work on those skills, like those are all really good treatment recommendations but I also think it's important uh, when you have an assessment like this done is figure out if there are any additional accommodations in the school environment or even like for adults who might be seeking psychological testing, if there are any uh, supports in the adult world that, that they might qualify for. Does that make sense? Totally. Mm-hmm. That, it does, does. And, and, you know, we actually, I forgot to tell you that we do get viewer questions and I have one for you now, if you don't mind taking it. Um, it's specific to intelligence testing. Um, and the question is, does that change over time? So I, I think the, the, the viewer was meaning like, if you get tested 
for intelligence testing or cognitive testing at some point, would that change over time? Like, would you, um, maybe if you were gifted when you were younger, <laughs> would that be, would all of a sudden it go away? <laughs> all, you know, I'm just interpreting the, the question here. So hopefully I got it right. What, what are your thoughts on intelligence testing and does that change over time? So the, the research shows that intelligence is pretty stable across, <laughs> across time. So generally, if you're seen as, or if you're assessed to be gifted uh, when you're 10, you're going to be gifted when you're 20. The Where you sometimes, I think, see changes in intelligence is obviously if something unfortunate really happened to the person's brain, like a, you know, traumatic brain injury or something like that That, those things Mm -hmm. can can impact uh intelligence but in terms of that seems to be pretty stable sometimes what can happen though is like our tests aren't perfect and so if somebody is just maybe they were anxious about going in for the site for psych testing uh the night before so they didn't sleep very well so now they're coming in for testing and they're tired so they're not paying attention as much and they're distracted or maybe they're a little crabby those things can sometimes impact scores not to a major degree but sometimes you'll see a little bit of bouncing in somebody's intelligence scores or cognitive functioning the one thing that is really important though is let's say somebody has uncontrolled anxiety, like uh, panic Mm -hmm. attacks and excessive worry and tenseness. And they go in for psychological testing that they're, of course, worried and anxious about. Right. Uh, Anxiety tends to suppress scores. So then what you might recommend is here is so-and-so's functioning as it is today with their current level of anxiety and such. If there's a question about whether the intelligence testing or cognitive testing is an accurate representation of their abilities, you might recommend let's get the anxiety under control and then reassess. That's smart. Right. I mean, then you would know exactly what's going on. So you can at least taper for that, you know. So we we had um, we had another viewer question and this time they were asking about personality testing. So can you talk to us a little bit about what personality testing is? What's the purpose? Why somebody would go and have personality testing done? Sure. So so personality testing, sometimes it's called social emotional testing or social emotional assessment. Uh, the way that is done is often through uh, paper, paper and pencil tests or computer-based tests where they ask you questions like... Um, True or false? I feel sad more days than not. Uh, You know, the next question might be, I am quick to anger when things don't go my way. And there's a bunch of these questions that are asked in that sort of manner. And a person who is taking that, uh, taking that assessment responds in a certain way. And then we take those scores and then we see how those scores match up to someone, um, their age and and like level of education and you can then see like okay well this person tended to endorse more depressive symptomatology so they're reporting more symptoms of sadness crying uh lack of pleasure low energy than the typical person their age so you can kind of get uh an understanding of what mood related issue they might be struggling with so that's like a that's like very helpful for for diagnostic consideration i like to use social emotional assessments though uh not only for that but by looking at the data closely you can get a sense of how someone might view the world like Mm -hmm. someone who endorses a lot of anxiety might see the world as highly unpredictable and chaotic and to me, that's more valuable than just saying, well, they have anxiety. Right. You're just really getting to the core of it, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. So that's how, that's what I really like about um, social emotional assessments is um, it's very uh, straightforward to do a descriptive analysis of it. Like, okay, there's a lot of worry here, but what they're worrying about, I think, is the more important question that needs answered. And so you can get at that through, like I said, those paper and pencil tests. Sometimes, you know, uh, a client will look at 
ink blots and try to figure out how, you know, like they tell the examiner what they, you know, what they see in those ink blots. And then that's uh, compared to a normative group to kind of get a sense of someone's inner workings. I feel like that's definitely what you see more on like TV shows or movies or kind of how like just more the like pop culture portrays psych testing is looking at those ink blots or like having somebody in a room where like the person, the examiner is just staring at them and like <laughs> trying to trying to see how long it takes for that person to crack. Oh my gosh, makes them crack. Yeah. <laughs> right. but that's Jeff, how I don't feel tell like you're doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel like it happens. Like when you see it on TV, for sure. Like that's what I feel like people. A lot of people assume happens during psych testing, uh, especially I feel like right. the personality section of the psych testing happens. Well, isn't personality? I feel just much more interesting. Like. You know, I, and when when Jeff, when you brought up Rorschach or Inkblot, as are commonly known by the world, <laughs> is seriously. I mean, I haven't done testing in a long time just because I I work more of with individuals and do therapy. But um, when I was doing Rorschach, let me tell you, I felt like I was a Rorschach queen. And so, um, one of the viewer questions actually was this: Is it useful <laughs> or useless? I have my answer. I'm so super super biased, but I also see Rorschach's like sometimes if you've been doing them for a while or maybe you're really into something I okay so just as an aside I went to a friend's house and I know this friend might listen to this so um <laughs> she has wallpaper that looks like ink blots like, like like I was in the bathroom using the bathroom and I was looking and I'm like did I have too much wine or something like that? Because like, because I mean, these really do. And then I said something and she's like, no one's ever said this to me. <laughs> so I'm just like, I am so weird. And you know, I'm cool with that. Really, And I kind of want the wallpaper, but my husband's really anti inkblot wallpaper in our powder room. <laughs> but just in case, I'm just saying, okay, I, so not only is, are they look beautiful, but the, the real question was, Jeff, the viewer question was useful or useless. What are, what's, what I have, my, I'm in my camp. I know Jen, I know where Jen lives because we used to code them together and uh-huh. we had a blast. Let me just tell you, um, yes. Jen, I think those are our favorite yes. memories from grad school was just coding, you know, yes. Rorschach. <laughs> blood test. Yes. Sorry, good to go on, Jeff. Let's be serious. What, useful or useless what what do you say i so yeah people are very um loyal to whatever camp they fall into um (laughs) i I find it to be pretty useful for a couple for a couple reasons number one (laughs) yeah of course because number one um the idea behind the rorschach is you get this ink blot that could look like whatever and then how your brain makes sense of it and organizes it into what it looks like to you right. um, is a kind of like a unique way of how you might see the world or what you project uh, onto the ink blot. So like, for example, you might see maybe a bunch of angry people in all your ink blots. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Too. I never saw that. Okay. No, but go ahead. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, one might assume then that maybe you're preoccupied with anger. Sure. So, sure. Mm-hmm. So like there's those sorts of things, but, but um, it's actually very useful with younger children mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well, because a, lo- a lot of our tests for younger kids. And when I mean younger, I'm talking about like younger than 12, younger than 12. The, the way we try to get at social emotional, um, issues for for those kids through assessment is we have the parent fill out behavior rating scales and while it's helpful to know what behavior the child is engaging in and what that diagnose what the diagnosis might be we aren't getting a good sense of why that child might be feeling that way and uh sometimes kids aren't um as able to articulate what emotions are going on because emotions are Mm -hmm. complex and can be messy sometimes. And so that what the Rorschach uh, does, I think you can use it for uh, children as young as five. And yeah, the material comes right from them. So it's the best, it's like, in my, my opinion, anyway, it's the best way to access information about the child from the source, from the source itself. Yeah. As opposed to how a parent might see things. Because one parent might see things in one way and another parent might totally. see things in right. a different way. And then you're lost. 
No, you know, you know, you you brought up a really good point that it's just like their inner workings of that person's feelings. And and one side note question: um, Do people still use the thematic app perception? I can't even say it. Was it thematic? The DAT? <laughs> I can't remember the thematic app perception test. Yes. Was that the one that was okay? Um, yes. Another fan favorite over here. Um, is that does that still used or no? I you know it. I don't I don't see it uh, being used as much, but I think in my current world in private practice uh insurance tends not to cover cover those types mm, of tests because really? they're, they're a little more qualitative yes yeah that's right as, as opposed to score based but um if i have extra time in my assessments i still use it and what the thematic app perception test is is you show someone a a picture and there's some scene going on like yes the first part is like a a child (laughs) looking like looking down at a violin and oh yeah i forgot about that one yeah then the prompt is you know tell you tell me a story about this picture and then it's kind of similar to the rorschach in that the person theoretically projects what might be going on inside them onto the card that they're making a story about. So you could, for example, have someone who maybe is struggling with um, feelings of inadequacy or inferiority. And so they see this child as dreading playing the violin because they're afraid they're not going to be good enough or that they're going to screw something Mm -hmm. up or whatever. And that can be good qualitative data um, for, for an assessment. Jen, don't lie. Yeah. You know, your favorite card was the one, the girl on the sofa with the creepy guy, <laughs> with the creepy guy looking over her. And I never understood what are we trying to elicit from the picture? Mm-hmm. I'm I mean, scared. So, I'm scared. <laughs> some of the some of the pictures are are yes. Some of them you like. I mean, I think you have to take into consideration the year that they were like 1952 yeah they're really old school picture and you just think like who who thought this would be a great question this would be a great picture to you (laughs) the creepy girl the creepy girl and then like even even for like the ink blots I remember like people would say something and I would and I would think like how do you see that and then they would show it to me and I'd be like oh Jen I totally see that are you thinking about gemstone mountain Jeff will have to tell you that off camera, but <laughs> I love answers. I love it. I wish I could just give this to the world. I mean, it would be totally unethical for me to do it. And I, and I keep them hidden in my home, but I do have those Rorschach. I feel like pulling them out tonight. <laughs> Take another look. <laughs> Take another look-see at what I'm, what's going on in my brain. <laughs> so, so Jeff, while you've kind of, I think, shared with us what, you know, all the different purposes of, of what you do of psychological assessments, all like the fun parts of it, what do you like most about your work? Um, so what I really like about, about my work, so I do both psychological assessment and therapy, and I like it the most when um, I can utilize a psychological assessment to better help someone in, in therapy. I always find that to be... Um, like the best way, like the biggest bang for your buck in terms of being really targeted and helping facilitate that growth. Uh, I like figuring out um, the answers to whatever puzzle people are bringing in. And, and Mm -hmm. I also, and I just feel very, um, what is rewarding for me is to help people figure out what's going on because oftentimes when they come in, they're, either really concerned or they're scared or they're confused and so if we can quantify what's going on and show them a path forward then that comes as a great relief to them um sometimes like when when i'm giving feedback in uh for a psychological assessment sometimes people get teary just because they're so glad that it has a name and there's a Mm -hmm. way forward I was or say- something they can do because the worst thing to that people can feel, I think, is hopeless and powerless over yeah. what's happening. Yeah, I mean, when you said that, I feel like that gave me like this like warm fuzzy inside because I yes. I feel like it it can be really difficult. I think it's it's hard for people to reach out for help. Yes, and then to be reaching out for help and trying different avenues and not seeing any changes. 
and how overwhelming and hopeless and frustrating that can be for the person. But then to be able to have this evaluation and this assessment and at the end of it, have like some potential answers and have some like, have like a roadmap of what they can do and where they can go and how they can start to see some sort of change. I feel like just has to, like, it just makes me feel all warm inside. <laughs> I love that. I love it. And I agree with you. I think that there is an art and a science to, to psych testing. You know, it's been a long time since I've, I've written one, but I remember getting that data and just really putting it together and seeing that person's point of view and how it would be helpful a lot of times for them to see this might be the way you see the world. So then here's how we elicit change, mm-hmm. you know, but by therapy. And, and, and I guess the other thing that I have to ask Jeff is what is like the most frequently asked question uh, about psychology or testing? Jen and I get asked all the time, like, are you analyzing me? And I'm like, no, I'm, no girl, I'm just having my coffee. <laughs> just eating my croissant. Yeah. So what, what, what is the most frequently asked question, whether it's like that or maybe something else that you get asked about psychology, testing, therapy, anything? So... I often get the, are you analyzing me right now? And I'm always like, no. Uh-uh. Uh, and then you're like, yes, now I am. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm just now kidding. I am. Um, but otherwise, um, like in, in the serious vein of things, um, people just need reassurance. Like, in ter- like they'll ask, you know, is this typical is this normal is this you know Mm -hmm. should my child be doing this should my child not be doing this I get asked a lot of those questions I think when I have my assessment hat on Mm -hmm. Um, yeah you know and that that goes for anybody when uh you know whenever it slips out that I'm a psychologist they're like well you know what my you know what my kid's doing you know he's like 10 years old but still is like you know sucking his thumb is that normal Maybe he's yeah. hungry. I don't know. <laughs> and so like I get a lot I get a lot of those and I think it just kind of reflects, you know, uh, you know, the attentiveness of people to um to like how close they are that they think they are, I should say, to what is typical or typical development. And we all do idiosyncratic things, but um I think you know the the most frequent question I get asked is basically, is this normal or not? Right. And especially with your population, probably child adolescent, because I was just telling a friend this the other day, when you, when, you know, among us, I have two kids. And so, um, you know, you always hear me talking about my kids. Like I even ask you guys, is this normal? But it's because they write all these children's books about what to do with your baby. Like, you know, what to expect in pregnancy and what to expect the first year. But afterwards it's like, they turn five and they're like, you're on your own brother. You know what I mean? like, so I'm just like, wait, wait, what? Like no one told me this. So, so I have to get mom friends to tell me. And then of course, you know, tapping into my psychology friends to double check what they said, you know, and make sure that we're all good. Good because it, it, people don't know what's normal, right? Mm-hmm, Unless right. you ask somebody. And it's so great that you provide that service that they, they feel comfortable enough to even come and ask. Right, right. Absolutely. So Jeff, our um, the title of our podcast is Everything You Want to Know About Therapy, But We're Too Afraid to Ask. And we kind of brought in therapy to like really psychology in general. So what is something that you wish people knew about the field or about your work or about therapy? You know, I, it's a good question. I, what, what I think is the thing I would want people to know in, involves whether people find seeking this type of support, whether it's psychological assessment or talk therapy, you know, sometimes people see it as very stigmatizing. I think mm-hmm, it's still mm-hmm. pretty stigmatizing in our culture and I, what I'm seeing now, which I think is a really, um, really good thing is I'm seeing more young people advocate for it. I can't tell you like in the last maybe three years or so, I've gotten calls from parents saying, you know, my adolescent, you know, asked if they could talk to someone because they're not feeling good or they're struggling in some sort of way. So I think like, like the younger generations are seeing psychotherapy as being a more acceptable sort of uh service but um I guess if I could tell someone like what I would want them to know is is seeking this type of support 
um, can be scary, but it's all about helping, you know, trying to help yourself and help you grow and help you manage whatever is going on. Because, you know, we all carry certain burdens in our life or certain, you know, certain struggles, but how we carry them can be up to us to some degree. And sometimes you can carry something in a way where it doesn't hurt you as much. I love that. I do too. Or it's just is lighter or something because you can't always remove something that is uh, challenging or painful necessarily, but how you carry it can certainly be uh, talked about and figured out. And so I just wish people um, could feel comfortable in knowing that that's out there for them. And it's not a selfish act and it's not an act of weakness or, or lack of ability. It's just kind of the, some of the wounds that we pick up as we just live our lives, things happen to us. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so why not seek help for that? To me, it's no different than I have a sore throat. <laughs> I got inflicted with a sore throat. Let it might be COVID actually. So be careful. <laughs> right. <Be> careful. <laughs> <laughs> or like my tooth hurts. Let's go see the dentist. Right. Well, if yeah. You know, if you're just feeling sad and it just feels like sad day after day after day and it's like not changing, you know, I would hope that someone would feel comfortable after listening to this great podcast and the <laughs> episodes you guys have recorded to kind of help normalize and demystify and destigmatize what's going on, you know, for, for therapy. Um, I just hope people will take good advantage of that. Well, that is definitely, definitely our goal is, is this hope that you would just as, as you would go see a doctor for any sort of physical ailment, that there's really no shame in normalizing going to see a therapist or talking with somebody about how emotionally you're feeling. Right. And to let go of some of that baggage, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have to carry it. We don't have to do it all. You know, all the suitcases of stuff. And um, Jeff, just a quick aside, if, uh, if, if people have additional questions, um, we have set up our Instagram account so that they could ask questions. Would that be okay with you if anyone has any questions about psych testing so we can pass those on to you and then maybe post them um, once they come in? Would that be all right? Oh, Absolutely. And just as a reminder, our Instagram account is at therapy underscore podcast underscore. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for being on our podcast with us today and for chatting with us and answering our questions and kind of demystifying psych testing and psychological assessments for us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a real, uh, it was really fun. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Jeff. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to good podcasts. And keep up with episode updates on Instagram at therapy underscore podcast underscore. There, you can send us messages on topics you'd like to hear about or anything that comes to mind. Bye for now. Thank you.